This is the Sensitive Matters Podcast, a podcast bringing empaths, perceptive people, creatives, unique projects, and sensitive matters into the spotlight. Join us for meaningful conversations that inspire and have the power to gently create awareness around sensitive and important matters such as mental health, conscious consumerism, sexuality, spirituality, ethical business, and much more. I am Christina Zipperlin, founder of the ethical jewelry brand Ananda Soul. I'm a highly sensitive human who values community, creative and spiritual exploration, and ways to make a positive impact. I'm also a psychology student and mental health and LGBTQIA advocate. We're tuning in from the magical island of Bali, where I've lived for over 12 years and is the home of my jewelry company that strengthens and gives back to the local community. Thank you for joining us for these conversations as we, together, explore sensitive matters. And now, enjoy the episode. Hello, and thank you for joining us for Sensitive Matters. This podcast is brought to you and made possible by Ananda Soul Jewelry. I created Ananda Soul in Bali over 12 years ago to offer heartfelt, intentional jewelry that works with the community I grew to know and love on the island that has become my home. Ananda brings creativity, respect for Balinese ritual, and a wish to give back to the local community to everything we do. To learn more about our story, ethics, and to receive $15 of your first order when you sign up for a newsletter, head over to anandasoul.com. Hello and welcome to Sensitive Matters. We are welcoming someone who is joyful and knowledgeable about spirituality, yoga, and embodied practices as our guest to the podcast today, Tara Judell. Tara Judell is an international yoga and somatics facilitator who founded the School of Embodied Flow in 2014. For over 20 years, she has brought her unique style of yoga and free movement embedded in the non-dual tantric teachings of Kashmir Shaivism into a movement for resourcing self-energy in the body. Inspired by body-mind centering, humanistic psychology, and the non-dual lineages of awakening, she brings clarity, lightheartedness, insight, and scientific depth into the teachings of yoga. Tara's greatest joy is to facilitate labs of somatic inquiry into order to bring students into their full capacity as human beings. Welcome, Tara. Welcome to Sensitive Matters. (laughs) If it's okay, I'd love to guide us just through a couple breaths of fully landing here and coming into our bodies. So if you want to just take a moment and settle. Anyone who's listening, if it's safe to close your eyes, you're welcome to do so. Otherwise, just find any way that feels like you're coming inwards for a moment. And just becoming aware of your physical body. 
any sensations that I hear right now. Bringing the awareness to the sit bones and the thighs. Becoming aware of the weight pressing into whatever is holding your body weight. Becoming aware of your feet. Sensing your hands. And then bringing the attention to the breath without trying to change anything, just acknowledging the quality of the breath right now. Noticing the subtle movements that the breath brings. Bringing in the quality of trust that whatever is coming up in this conversation here, whatever our listeners are, are here to listen, that it's exactly what is meant to be here today. My prayer is that there are some sweet messages and reminders for whoever needs to hear them right now. Gently becoming aware of the outside world again. Sensing the air on your skin. Becoming aware of my voice. And whenever you feel ready, you're welcome to open your eyes. I'd like to dive in. You're the founder of Embodied Flow Yoga, and the word embodied gets thrown around a lot, right? And I'm curious what it means to you and um, where your passion comes from to use that word as the name of your, of your school. Yeah. Embodied Flow came about because I met the world of body-mind centering, which was founded by Bonnie Bainbridge Cohen. It's a lot of bees. And what Bonnie Bainbridge, in my opinion, revolutionized is the the world of what she calls embodied anatomy. Embodied anatomy, from her perspective, is moving into the anatomical landscape from the inside, not different than what you just did in that short meditation, but bringing into the foreground cellular consciousness, the felt sense of bones, the skin of the bone, the conical bone, the marrow of the bones, bringing fascia, anything, literally anything that is within us, within the body and examining it from the felt sense of it. 
And so for me, that word embodied, I was borrowing from her concept of embodied anatomy. And for me, it means to put it within the body. And how do we use, like pairing it with the word flow, how do we use the felt sense of the music of our body in order to navigate experience versus, let's say in the landscape of anatomy, the cognitive sense of an anatomical landscape, which in the first trainings I ever took 25 years ago, it felt like we would have a huge Netter's anatomy book and, you know, some things to color, some things to draw, some skeletons, but the felt sense of it wasn't, besides maybe what we could touch, that wasn't in the foreground. And to me, what was revolutionary was to recognize that I'm not a brain with a body, but I'm, I'm this landscape of consciousness that also has a brain on top of other things that I have. And so for me to be embodied means to inhabit the entirety of what I am, which feels to me like a, like a, a never-ending goal because even the parts that I do inhabit within myself, the parts that I've been able to bring online are endless in terms of what we could know. So it's, um, yeah, I see that that word has been picked up a lot and it's a, it's a beautiful and useful word. And to me, what we intend by it in, in the use of embodied flow is it feels to me very specific that we're, we're speaking of truly landing within ourselves in the mm. body. Right. To landing within ourselves beyond just just identifying as the mind, but as the full entire. Yeah. And one thing, you know, one thing Bonnie Bainbridge says is the mind is everywhere. So where mm-hmm. is the mind? I mean, we know that Buddhists say the seat of the mind is in the heart. And we've sort of from the age of reason, perhaps given the seat of the mind to the brain. But one language that we use is, let's say, the mind of the fluids or the mind of the organs. So when we land inside of a system of the body, we refer to the the qualities or the felt sense of that particular part as the mind of. And it's curious because even as many years as I've been doing this, I'll still refer to the mind and point to my mm-hmm. head. But where is where is our consciousness arising from? And one thing that Bonnie Bainbridge Cohen says is the brain is always the last to know, which I really, <laughs> I really love and subscribe to because the more I enter into the topography of my body, the more I recognize that the cues of what I am or what we are arise from everywhere. 
simultaneously. And the brain is a wonderful interpreter. However, <laughs> it's an interpreter. It's not mm-hmm. the originator. Yeah, it flips the whole thing on its head a little bit, like some of the, the standard things that um, many of us, like the concepts we've kind of grown up with or, you know, the simplistic ways that, that things are explained often. I mean, I came from a very brain-centric family. And so I think that lent itself quite a bit to my own journey that both my parents are um, very smart and they tend to examine the world from, you know, like I start to think of brains like a giant I-E-Y-E and that we just, <laughs> we're kind of like this cyclops looking around at the world from the perspective of the brain, which the Tantra tradition would say, you know, the mind is Maya, that the, the, the cognition of experience is what develops and creates so many stories, as you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It deeply resonates because I, I grew up in a similar environment and, and it's, um, yeah, it's probably one of the reasons why I embarked on the journey I, I did because something was, was like, it's not fully, it's not fully it. Um, and I love, I love that piece of, oh, the, the brain is the last one to know. Cause that, that's like, if you, if you consider all the information that we pick up on and don't go from an intellectual perspective, cause you know, for the ones of us that purely live in the intellect, no, the, the brain is, the first one to know intellectual things, right? But if you open up into the full spectrum of all the things we truly pick up on, it's like, whoop, changes the hierarchy. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit more of how, how your journey started. You know, as you said, you came from a family that was a bit more in the, in the intellect. And um, how did yoga begin for you? Yoga began... Well, the first, I think there was two beginnings for me. The first beginning was um, with Lilius Foreman, who was uh, like a public TV yoga celebrity in the 70s. And, you know, with her long braid and her unitard and her very public television, you know, yellow rug background, um, as a kid, probably seven or eight, I would pretty uh, consistently take yoga with Lilius Foreman. And then I lost it until I went to drama school in my 20s and um, to study directing. And I saw a friend who was doing, who was practicing yoga in one of the rehearsal halls and it sparked it like it it sparked in such a way she gave me a book like a spiral notebook with stick figures doing yoga and i practiced that in my room for about a year until i moved to los angeles and then i went and i joined a gym and in the gym um the teacher who was teaching something called i don't know he called it quantum yoga he since changed his methodology but 
I immediately followed him to his yoga studio and quit the gym. And only then, this is probably 97, did started twice a day yoga. Like I, I was obsessed. At the time, I was living in Hollywood because I was trying to be a writer, director of films. And so what it mostly meant is that I was procrastinating writing and <laughs> using every excuse to go to yoga whenever possible. So I thought that my vocation was writing and that yoga was my mistress, but then it's become now the reverse. <laughs> when did it tip? Or how did um, it tip? It tipped almost immediately the second time that I, I mean, I was writing, but I felt like from that point of view in my 20s, when I entered into the yoga room that time, it was, it, it, it was just an obsession. It was, uh, it felt like everything that I had been looking for in my life And I'd already at that point in my 20s, like I'd gone to you know school in New York. I'd done all the very arty intellectual things in New York. I'd gone to drama school and still I felt this bifurcation of my brain and body. But once I stepped into the first yoga class, it all came together. And that's, I mean... Obviously, that's the union that yoga promises, but it was it it wasn't at that time it didn't feel like it was so commercial, and so it wasn't this kind of out front duh, that's what yoga does. I just Los Angeles was new to me. I would say yoga was new to me, and I yeah, I very quickly um, became obsessed with it, but it tipped into a vocation um, around 2001, um, my first day of uh, teacher training. So I'd been taking yoga at that point, like four years. I made an independent film. On the last day of filming that film, the whole set burnt down. And I thought it was cute at the time to call my film company Kali, K-A-L-I, like the goddess films. And... That wasn't a smart idea because she is a fierce goddess. And mm. so she basically cut off my head by burning down the set. And so I thought, oh, I will get back into yoga by taking um, a teacher training. At that point, it was Anasara Yoga, which um, it was the first Anasara Yoga training in Los Angeles. And the first week of the training was 9-11. Um, And so really quickly, New York and the Twin Towers, which had been my backyard for four or five years, were, you know, destroyed. And for me, that was a rift in consciousness where there was no going back. Like I didn't want at the end of my days to have fought the fights that I was struggling with in filmmaking and writing and the business of Hollywood. I didn't know I would be a yoga teacher at that point. I just knew that I wasn't doing life the way I had been doing it. And probably about three months later, I started my first teaching gig and never stopped. So I would say like 2001 was the serious, this is my 
life forever. Mm -hmm. Super powerful, especially with 9-11 and that. 9-11 was intense. It was one of those, I mean, for me, I had started to notice a few years before that I would have dreams about things, either friends or loved ones, and they would kind of slip linear time. So sometimes I would have dreams that were very unusual and yet somehow they would, they would come true. And which, you know, which we know now is, or what I know anyways from yoga is like, that's more, that's more common than not common because Mm -hmm. we're, we're tapping into this continuous field, Mm -hmm. but for sure the morning of 9-11 and I was living in Los Angeles at the time I was dreaming about planes hitting towers and then woke up at like 6.30 in the morning when a friend called me to tell me to turn on the TV and watch what was happening. And that was for sure the dream. But the, the before and after rift in consciousness was so profound. There was for me no... There was no choice. I mean, I think many people around that time, my friends from New York, certainly, and other friends of mine ended up having a life change at that point in time. Because, you know, as as I think is, to me, this is the next uh, phase of that kind of radical re-rendering the, the, the years of the pandemic feels like an echo of that time that... Yeah. It's so significant, the before and after. Yeah. And such a disruption that kind of, you know, for many of us opens our eyes. Like, what am I doing with my life? What do I truly want to do with my life? Yeah. You're speaking in, in relationship to the dreams in general, with, um, to the to the interconnectedness. And um, it made me want to, read out um like when I ask you what what you are passionate about I absolutely love what you wrote and I have a few questions about that um but I'd love to read for everyone to to hear what you wrote I am passionate that humans become the liberated creative full embodied selves that we're innately born to become that we wake up to being a continuum in the organism of us and in so doing find the incentives to heal ourselves and the collective. I wish wish each of us to taste, to know, and to thrive so that we become mutually supportive and enjoy our multiplicity. First of all, that feels so poetic. (laughs) What a beautiful... Sounded great when you read it. Um, I'd love to hear more about the waking up to being a continuum in the organism of us. What does that mean to you? Well, part of, I'll back up just a little bit. And, you know, part of embodied flow is my working laboratory to understand or to realize the teachings of non-dual tantra. And in a nutshell, what that says or what that means is that the microcosm is the macrocosm, that we are like a drop of water in the ocean who mistakenly thinks that we're separate from the ocean. 
intellectually we could understand that, but it's a much different thing to actualize that. So what I've noticed over years and years of practicing, let's say embodied, it was compartmentalized, but embodied flow is trying to blur the seams of this. So meditation, free movement, and really the the self-study of of inquiry that we're doing all the time is that you know our skin is porous our heart rates are linked our in the quantum field we know that our cells that have ever really vibrated together or resonated together can shift even if they're 10,000 miles apart measurably and that's only with what we can measure so the illusion that we create as human beings of being separate from one another separate from our environment and separate from a unified field all of that buddhism says tantra says is the cause of our suffering and there's been many times and the longer I practice and the more I journey, the more I realize more and more and more times where separateness dissolves and the knowing of being part of this field, which we all experience. I mean, the the sutras will say like in deep sleep, like in the non-dual state of deep sleep, but with our eyes open and our awareness online or our consciousness online. And I am just simply obsessed with times when, well, what I've experienced through the the laboratory of embodied flow is when the class can do that. So in that container of the class, however we get there, if it's through the the skin, for example, and we're focusing on the skin and we create a whole movement journey through moving from our skin and then moments where maybe in the middle, maybe at the peak, maybe by the end of class, there feels to be like the the resonance in the room or the flavor in the room is such that it feels that there's no separation Mm -hmm. and we'll check in with the student, I mean, we always, in Embodied Flow trainings, we'll always process the class after. And so the, the, the dialogue then reveals that for most people, that, that tends to become the experience, which I think happens a lot in music and in sports. It doesn't have to be, you know, specific meditation per se. So many, um, in so many different flow states for some people in work. And the the knowing of that, and I would say the continuous remembrance of that makes it living so rich, so wealthy, so abundant, and so endlessly fascinating. Because what we're looking at outside is truly simply just a part of ourself from the perspective of Tantra, like the the mantra hamsa i am that is i am i am that i'm as i'm looking out at the wind and the palm trees i am that mm-hmm. or if i'm looking at the sunset i am that 
or if I'm looking at a heap of garbage, I am also that. And I think the more we we could say rehearse or practice that, the more we we slip into that point of awareness, widening the field, widening our mind, which I I think makes us more compelled to look at others as we would our own body or as our own self to have compassion and also to use one another as a boundless resource for joy, for interaction, for inspiration. I mean, as as we're doing, just to have dialogue expands already, you know, all of the possible neural connections all of the possible feeling connections, right? That reciprocity is how, or let's say, as the Tantra Sutras would say, as the Tantras would say, reciprocally adapted subjects and objects. So there's, if there's ears, there must be sound. Or if there's eyes, there must be form. And I guess if there's a Tara, there must be a Christina. <laughs> there's, there's somehow this amazing, like, fractal manifestation that that we we can also identify with just as we could identify with a single locality like where i sit in time and space and and locality i can also develop an awareness that allows me to sit in many places simultaneously which you know those moments of having a dream that is predictive or as many people have these super natural senses, sensory capacities that, you know, like clairaudience or um, clairvoyance, I think that's so much more common than we realize. And, and actually just us tapping into something that is already there. Yeah, and acknowledging and strengthening those parts, like you spoke to your class and like I could feel it in my skin right like I can imagine if you do a whole practice and and get a a palpable sense of that interconnectedness um you were speaking to remembrance and I know for my own life a lot of it seems to be about airtime about just rolling up my mat or sitting down on the cushion over and over and over so that it does ripple out in my day-to-day and I do I do notice um, that if I don't do that on a regular basis, it's harder to access. However, often, even if I did roll up my mat and I did meditate, I go into the world and I'm like in some kind of fear state or, you know, a trauma gets triggered and I'm, I'm convinced that I am separate, right? That, that what changes in the mind there. And um, I know that, we do live in a time where there has been a lot of polarization, really, a lot of blaming and and finger pointing and defensiveness. And so while I'm like, my whole body's like, yes, to what you're speaking, I'm also aware of a lot of what's going on in the world that seems to be an expression of the opposite, right, of comparison and and blaming and um, and anxiety and mental health issues and, and all of the things that I know you and I are really passionate about. And I'm curious what, one, your take is on, on that. And two, what are some 
some ongoing practices? Like, do you have any tricks for yourself when you, I don't know if you do experience that, but when you have that moment of like, no, I'm definitely separate. How, yeah. How do you bring yourself back? Just the small questions. Um, <laughs> As we do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think we're in a very challenging time. And, you know, I remember at the beginning of stepping into practice, many teachers would say we're in the Kali Yuga, like this period of time where Maya is incredibly um, strong and getting stronger. And I've said to some of my friends and colleagues recently, like, oh, 20 years ago, I thought we were in Kali Yuga, but I realized like we were just ahead of the curve. Like it feels really now we're in that period of time and it kind of reminds me of several different teachers that I met in India and you know I I would sort of go to them with these wide eyes and say like what is what what's the thing like give me the stuff and several times they answered to me stira sukham asanam like yoga is steadiness and ease and the way that they would explicate on that is that it is not steadiness and ease in the lotus garden or at the easy times. It's steadiness and ease in the crowded marketplace. And what they meant by marketplace was not Whole Foods, but the marketplace that is the Indian marketplace with so <laughs> many things happening and people begging and the smells and the chaos. The other thing I would say is that whenever there's evolution, there's also devolution. It's happening simultaneously. So I think that all of the polarity that we're experiencing is an invitation for us to find how to anchor more and more inside of the diamond center of ourselves. And my practice is to find a locality in my body, mind. I use that as a hyphenate word. That changes for me depending on what it is. So part of my practices are to find locations inside of me that bring me home to the felt sense of, of continuity so you mentioned like when I was speaking about the skin that gave you that sensation of skin and that's in from body mind centering that's called transmission I tried I mean the first part of my body that I was able to really feel and sense that wasn't obvious or tangible was my kidneys so kidneys are a really great place for me to kind of land inside of and feel some cushion, some support. I like to find my spine, like my vertebral column. I play with the back line of my body, kind of leaning into space. I play with the sensation of my feet on the ground. I play with my heart. I'm careful, though, because a lot of people say like they anchor in their heart. And sometimes my heart, at least for me, so I think it's very individual, but my heart can be one of the things that feels incredibly vulnerable or exposed, especially when there is polarity. 
So I try to find, you know, I think the more places I can find in my body that help me rest into, I mean, I think of it as kind of zipping into the, into the wider field, the better it goes. So I, I, it's, it's like gathering tools and deciding, you know, or like having different mantras, like on the fly, which one is going to work. It's not always the same. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's one of my main practices. If you said, what's a shortcut? It's like, I find, and, and for me, one of the most consistent places that I go is the back body to play. I mean, something that we use in embodied flow is the idea of axis and appendicular. And what is in functional anatomy, what is the axis of our body is the trapezoidal bone, the occiput, all the way to the sacrum. So kind of like where a cranial sacral therapist would place two hands. And that comes from the embryology of what really is the center line of ourselves. So if I tap into that place, the, you know, the triangle shape of the sacrum and the trapezoidal shape of the occipital bone, it helps my eyes slide back and interior helps the bones of my face and the more sort of individualized body of the mask of the face and the front body. It helps it kind of float into the support of space behind. And that helps me become less grippy on, let's say, specific words or beliefs or points of view. I'm not great at it. I get very, I can easily get sparky and charged. And so I've, I've been working a lot, like, let's say since COVID times to, to hear, to listen, to see, and then just to rest back and see if I can hold the polarities of things to keep both points of view because like what the tantra tradition would say is from the perspective of ultimacy there's not it's not binary it's not good and bad it's not right and wrong it's not this and that it just it's isness and it's all happening so can you can you expand to the diversity or of dichotomies and hold both a formidable practice way beyond downward dog (laughs) yeah and that's that's where the rubber hits the road now it's like it's an ongoing practice yeah and that's where i know for myself all the suffering lies so then when i can do the leaning out and in and back it's like i love that yeah and in identifying with and i know this is probably part of the work that you do as well, like finding the self capital S energy that has never not been here, that existed before we were born and continues to exist and is also in the core of our being. And we all, I think, I think we all know it. It's just that so much in the world let's say religions, governments, mostly those two, are not there to point out that you're sovereign in yourself 
And so the more we take that position or take that seat within ourselves, I think the easier it becomes to remember. But as you said, it is an everyday practice, however you practice it. If you practice it in cleaning your house or if you practice it on a yoga mat or you practice it feeding your kids, it's a constant practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one so worth worthwhile. Like once we just, yeah. I know for myself, once I make that a priority, my whole nervous system, everything is, it's just more joyful, really, at the end of the day. More, more joyful. Connected. And, you know, it may seem obvious, but to imagine a world where everyone had access to that, right? That's, that's the thing that keeps me going is like, okay. And I, I recognize as a microcosm of the macrocosm, like I make fun of myself all the time at how bad I am at remembering these things, but I'm probably because it's so hard for me that I'm compelled to, to pursue the practice compelled to keep working on it I mean I've met people who I feel like reside there innately a lot of them native Balinese people that somehow innately reside in this very beautiful space of being part of the whole Mm -hmm. so gracefully and I'm aware that maybe because it's hard for me that therefore (laughs) I'm compelled to assimilate practices or offer practices or have to practice myself Mm -hmm. I mean I I don't know where what your take is on that but I feel from my own studies it's um I know for myself it has so much to do with upbringing the culture the family the nervous systems we're born into and and I know because you did give the example of the Balinese and in general the traditions there are very very community focused like children are never alone they are held by somebody at all times there there's daily devotion right there is that that soothing energy of sitting in prayer in meditation in that in that regulated state right that's a daily thing that they that these people are born into and so the children i'm noticing it of in general there's there's a calmness about them. And I was in Bali during the pandemic and the level of anxiety and nervousness was so much less than some of, I I mean, we can't compare this because in different parts of the world, it was very different, right? However, I mean, I was here as well when the volcano erupted and sure, there's measures that have to be taken. However, that core anxiety that I'm familiar with in the cultures that I grew up in and lived in, it's just not the same here. So I'm, I'm also wondering, you know, the ones of us that are seeking out these teachings, these practices, like we just don't have it in us innately. So yes, then we do need to do practices for it. The ones that were born into, into these peaceful nervous systems, like they don't have to practice it every day. So then to me, it also makes sense that then it might be, more challenging for us right because we in a way have to undo something first and practice something that to others is just a given i mean it 
it used to crack me up when I when I first moved here to teach yoga, to run the yoga shala down south in Changu in 2009. And I would come, you know, on my scooter, like kind of late, kind of uh, nervous to go teach class. And I would like trip up the stairs to the front office and there would be the like four or five, you know, desk that front office employees and they would just be smiling and laughing at me in a good-hearted way but they're just like hi Miss Tara you're here to teach the yoga and every single time I knew <laughs> they were more yogic than me like I was I was zipping up having stress like being late running to class like trying to think of what am I going to say and they were just being there smiling, <laughs> living in some semi-samadhi state. And they must have laughed. I mean, you know, not in a making fun way, but the Westerners, most of us, like there is this, as you said, kind of like an inherited stress response to life that, yeah, we have to re-remember how to how to be and i do think that what you said is very apt the continuity of family community ritual um support i mean they're they're the balinese are very rich in their support systems like they're very you know it does feel like what we've said that kind of more of a continuum i love here watching you know the people smile and laugh with each other and you know help like you said like the children feel like they can go very seamlessly from house to house inside of the village that they all know each other they're all supported and not alone as also the generations of family yeah it's it's a it's a completely different internal perspective I think yeah I'd love to come back for a second to some of the practices that you mentioned of you know coming into your spine and um and obviously we'll share later how people can find your teachings and connect with you um I was wondering though if you could expand on that a little bit more like what you mean with you know going into the the mind of your kidneys or is like is there any internal dialogue or any anything that you guide yourself through? I could imagine, right? It is in the marketplace, quote unquote. Um, like you might be out and about, and you're like, "Oof, I'm I'm merging and blending with with my anxiety right now. I'm gonna drop into my spine." What if you're okay to sharing? Like what happens inside of you when you attempt to do that? Yeah, I mean. If you were to imagine something that's tactile, like if you were to say, oh, it, it helps me if I massage my hand and you can physically touch one hand to the other. Registering, which is, so there's, there's a kind of a sequence, which is visualization, feeling, and then action. So, or somatization or sensing so sensing kind of has a cognitive piece to it it's like if I were searching for my keys in the dark 
I, I have to, I, I'm, I'm using my senses in order to look for. Once I have the keys in my hand, then, you know, then I can do whatever it is I need to do. So the process of embodied anatomy kind of follows that sequence. <clears throat> I'll back up for just a moment, go back to the spine. But the first time I encountered this work, like around 2008, my friend Chloe, who was my gateway to body-mind centering, and she was studying thoroughly in the program, and she said to me, uh, you don't feel your spleen. And I was like, yeah, where's the spleen? And who even really, who even thinks about the spleen? <laughs> and and from, she wouldn't, she wouldn't give me anything because, which is also part of body mind centering. Like she would just say, well, it's a really good inquiry for you to hold. And so the way I went about looking for that was looking in anatomy books. I would poke around. I would try really hard with my brain. I, you know, kind of like as a kid, you might try to like turn out the lights with your mind, but nothing would happen. <laughs> and then one day, which was probably about 10 days after the initial inquiry, it just started to spark and come online. I mean, that is, that's the term I use, that it comes online, which felt, you know, which feels like, and I think you're feeling yours now, like it feels like a, you know, kind of like a bubbly, the spleen for me feels like a, you know, like a bubbly uh, cushion of support in the left side of the body. And so to come into the spine, it's a similar process after spending, I mean, for me, having spent, I don't know, many hundreds or thousands of hours in that same sequence of visualizing it, perhaps looking at skeletons, looking at anatomy books, having visualized inside and then landing there so actually feeling it and then knowing I mean some cues that had been offered to me is that like you can lean into your vertebral column like a cat rubbing on a post so that gives a centralizing or a midline perspective as well as recognizing right that this anatomy is already there and now we're allowing our awareness to swim inside of ourselves and to recognize it can travel anywhere we ask it to. So, you know, one of the, one question I'll hear people ask Bonnie Bainbridge a lot is, you know, well, how do I, how do I feel that? And she'll say, well, darling, just ask. <laughs> and so it's the, it's the permission to ask yourself to, kind of crawl inside of your body mind and to unknow what you think it is, how you think it is. Because I think many of us, or I'll just say for myself, I used to very, you know, I'd look into the mirror and say, okay, that's me. When I was in asana at the early days of yoga, what I loved about it is that I would feel me with not a with with only the specificity that was offered 
within the context of that asana class. So the little pieces I would know were, okay, move my bones this way or move my, move my leg this way, my hands this way, hug this. There was a lot of a muscle and bone cue. And every once in a while, the odd organ in a very generalized manner. And on Asara, we had this clue, uh, this cue, inflate the kidneys, which always cracked me up because I never understood what it meant, even though I would use the cue. <laughs> it's not a very good cue. But you can start to hover your awareness around where the band of the kidneys exists. And with a very soft inner gaze, so it, it, it kind of allows the cognitive um, aspect of ourselves to dial down. And then when the feeling sensation arises, as it is in you now, then you know it. You're there. Like, it's as if you're holding it in your hands. Mm -hmm. And it's not that you have to, once you have that awareness, like, squeeze it, hammer it, <laughs> hold it tightly. You just, you can sort of let it go. And, um, but it informs you. Mm -hmm. And you can feel, maybe the people who are listening can also start to feel, because, you know, one thing that a silver lining of the pandemic is that through Zoom, we've been able to confirm that we can perceive across time and space through the screen and also confirm, right? I can confirm that you feel that sensation and I can feel that you feel that sensation, even though we're across time and space, which is another, to me, almost tangible sensation that we're not separate. Because we can do that, like ants yeah. can do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, even though we're not in the same room. I'm curious in your own understanding, as you feel into the different organs and parts of the body, do you notice like different emotional qualities, energetic qualities? Like, do you do you reverse it as well? Like specifically, like from my understanding, the liver is known to hold anger. Like, is that something that you play with as well? I play with it. I like to forego. So like the Chinese medical model, I love. I love to, I love to play with the, um, with the channels. And I'm, I'm working with an acupuncturist to, to, um, to kind of create a, a six-layer theory, alternate um, style of yin that's coming forward mm. however I'm like I might kind of dab that information in but I'm not sure if the liver is holding anger or if my stomach is holding anger or mm. something else so more the inquiry I would say is how does that feel to you yeah. like, how do you experience that mm -hmm. and what I what I one thing I think of a lot is coming from a film background, like, you know, old films used to have a single camera. So there'd be like one point of view, whereas modern, a modern innovation in the film, The Matrix was to have a whole circle of cameras. Mm -hmm. And from the circle of cameras, you could take a figure up and 
turn it around in space and time. And so when we're in laboratories together, and let's say we're all feeling into our kidneys, I love to hear from the collective because somebody is going to have a very acute sensation of their kidneys. And it might, it might have colors, it might have sound, it might have directionality. Somebody else might have a very faint idea, but the one, you know, one can teach the other. And I think it continues to unfold, you know, so I love to look at all the different background about our organs, like, to, okay, the Greeks, the ancient Greeks had the humors and, um, you know, different, there's, you know, the chakra system from India and there's different chakra systems. So I love to read like what different cultures or science or even different eras of science felt about the body, but then to also inquire, is that true for me? Is that how I experience it? Yeah. I love how that speaks to the multiplicity as well that we spoke to earlier. Yes, we are connected, right? Like you're sensing me feeling my liver and it is such a unique way of what that feels like to me. And as I share with you, you're like, and you have that openness because you feel our connection and you're like, whoa, because to me, it feels so different. And, and that, yeah, that interconnecting of, of hearing each other, I just feel as you're speaking to, to the polarization that exists right now, I feel if there's more conversations like that, like, what does it feel like to you? What does it feel like to you? Oh, okay. How interesting. Huh? I had no idea. There could be so much healing in that. So much healing because it's, whatever someone believes is a hundred percent true for them. And so it's, there's no objective in the sky. This is the right answer. This is the right thing to do. Like, this is the way it is. Like we don't even know what we don't know. So to stay open and curious is, you know, such a wonderful way for us to receive each other and to see, I mean, I love to read about the dialogues between people historically that sparked innovation. And, you know, as you know, like in the world of psychology, it's, it's because Jung had a deviation from Freud or because others subsequently had deviations from the ones that came before. So we don't want to eliminate the difference. It's what sparks the innovation. Mm-hmm. But can we develop the tolerance to receive one another in our differences? It's hard. And I think, you know, the media definitely exacerbates the differences so that we get so charged up. <laughs> it's yeah, for sure. Yeah. And they're like getting pulled out rather than kind of settling in and trusting and knowing that whatever whatever is our experience is okay. And it's validated. Yeah. Mm, thank you. Yeah, it makes me feel into like, as you know, you know, my creations, one studying into the, the field of somatic coaching, somatic therapy, and really like honoring the body and that. And then, you know, the the jewelry creations I create are so I mean, I really 
make them more for myself of having these reminders that I need in any particular day. Like if I'm feeling really connected to Kuan Yin, who in a way, like, you know, she rides the dragon. And, and when I, when I feel her, she says, my love is powerful. I, I rest into my spine. Like it's, it's these little symbols. Um, and I know as part of this little conversation, we, we sent you to the store to pick a few pieces and I'd love it if you could speak a little bit to just, yeah, what, what, what they mean to you, what you picked, any words that you do have. I know, first of all, I love the pieces that I picked. These, I picked two necklaces and um, they were, this one that I'm wearing is, I follow my inner truth. And I think it's so much like what we've been speaking to. I mean, what's pictured on it is a beautiful mountainscape with a full moon over it. And I think having a talisman on, I mean, first of all, I've, I've watched you, like the intentionality with which you create. And I'm a big believer that, you know, all the, all the sequence of things that are created holds a vibration and a frequency that comes with so, you know, when I select jewelry, it, I, you know, the intentionality, the, the meaning, the, the care that's put into it. And I see that in all of your pieces, like it's impossible to go into your store and say, select something. I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> like going into the universe and say, pick a star, like which star do you prefer? I don't know. <laughs> they're, they're so... All of them are, I mean, all of them have such depth and significance. Um, I can imagine the amount of energy that you pour into, into the creations, into the, um, the sweetness of them. And I, you know, I am struck, particularly in this day and age, you know, being a woman that travels around the world, that this possibility i think we've talked about this before it's never it's never been possible maybe in the last 100 years but not to the extent that we can not with the choices that are afforded to us and i feel somehow like this tremendous urge to pursue inner truth, inner wisdom in a way that perhaps my, my, I don't know, like if my ancestors were able to, or to the extent that they were able to, but for sure we have similar missions, you and I, which is to, to realize that truth, to actualize it, to create it, to potentiate it in others. And that is incredibly exciting. I feel and I was thinking about this in the last couple of days. Like we went, you mentioned Kuan Yin. We went to um, Goagiri Gutri and Nusa Panita, the that mother temple. And the last station is Kuan Yin. And I was just thinking, going through, you know, Ganesh, um, Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, and Kuan Yin, like the sequence, how this continuum of DNA that 
that is passed down and passed down and passed down and passed down for millions and millions and millions of years until it ends up in, in this vessel that is me and the vessel that is you, that it's encoded in the, the spirillic DNA are all the, all the truths of our ancestors. And it's almost like, and I feel their packed desire like their desires if it was to move country or to migrate or to preserve or to perform or to whatever it was that you know then we're manifest out of that what else to do but live this truth as difficult as it may be to realize but Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 100% we're here to it makes me think of it really really and that's quite personal but I have a really powerful meditation and I had once and I felt I felt my mom and her mother really closely in my fields and and a part of me just wanted to melt with them they're both not in their bodies anymore and I was like oh I want to be with you and they came through with such fierceness and they were like you're the one of us with a body right now and we gave you that body so yeah. go and to live in it, you know, as boldly and as much in your truth as you can, because you're the one of us with a body right now. And that just, it kind of changed my life, that that experience with them. I'm like, oh, yeah, do not take this lightly. And, and you know, for many of us, especially female-bodied, we, we live in an environment where we're so harsh in our bodies and feel this entire conversation. There's so much magic in there. There's so much like so much of a tool of being here more experiencing more joy more pleasure more everything and so why not fully do it despite the the chaos of it at times right and the challenge they dance in your blood they live in your veins and i really hear you i had a a similar experience that was facilitated by one of my mentors where in my my mom's mom my grandmother who died in childbirth with my mom so I never met her and she came into this session so profoundly so clearly so intensely and I feel like and this was maybe six or seven years ago, but she's been walking with me ever since. And there were so many strange coincidences. I was in Germany at the time and I couldn't figure out why there, like why is this the place that my grandmother is appearing? And then I found out later that she was, even though she was American, she was fluent in German and I don't know what, like, I don't know why there, why then, why those circumstances, but it was, it it feels like the privilege to be able to walk places that she didn't get to walk, to move in ways that she probably didn't move to see and taste and touch and interface and even to cycle back and get to be with my mother in a way that she couldn't after her birth. All of those things felt like part of the continuum. Yeah. 
Thank you so, so, so much. What a yummy Thank you. Pleasure. What a joy. I know. When I asked you um, what projects you're excited about right now, you said, I'm mostly excited about the fact that when we come into our body, all resources are available, which I love. <laughs> I love that response. And um, for anyone out there who would like to study with you, be connected, take one of your classes, how can they do that? Um, this year in particular, because I I put a kind of a hiatus on um, advanced trainings during COVID. So I'm really excited to be returning to in-person events. And I have a bunch of immersions um, and trainings coming up. And they can find all that information on tarajudel.com. That's my website or embodiedflow.com. And um, I have online classes at the moment on Yoga Glow. And I have some audio recordings, specifically ones about coming into the body and coming into the self also on my website. Mm. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. We'll put all the links into the show notes. You can just mm-hmm. click on them. Thank you so much, Tara. Oh, thank you. So good to chat with you. So, so good. Thank you for joining us for Sensitive Matters. If you haven't had a chance yet, please subscribe on Spotify, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast from. And if you have a chance, please rate and review if you're listening via Apple Podcast, as it really helps more people discover the show to listen to these incredible conversations. This podcast is brought to you from Bali and made possible by my ethical jewelry company, Ananda Soul. You can check out our website and all of our ethically handmade jewelry at anandasoul.com. You'll also receive a $15 gift card on your first purchase when you subscribe to our newsletter, so make sure not to miss out on that as well. Thank you again for joining us, and we look forward to sharing more of Sensitive Matters with you. Thank you.